0: I think the world has changed, and that leads partly to that that rise of Canadian patriotism. 9-11 did change the world's psyche, and post 9-11, all that went with it, I think helped Canadians deepen their understanding and their appreciation of the country. Welcome to Canoosa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands.
1: Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, joined by the ever fabulous Professor Chris Sands of Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing?
2: I'm great, Scotty. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing really well. I am excited about our conversation today. We have, we're stacking the house with John Stackhouse. He's a famous Canadian. I don't know if Americans all know him yet, but they will after this podcast. And John and I were recently in Edmonton, Alberta together speaking to a business conference. And he was so smart and so brilliant talking about his new book that I thought, holy moly, we've got to have him talk about this book on Canusa Street. So I'm really excited that he agreed to join us. And Chris, why don't you introduce our esteemed guests properly?
2: I'm glad to do it because John's someone that uh, has been a great supporter of the Wilson Center as well. He is senior vice president in the office of the CEO of RBC, which some of us remember as the Royal Bank of Canada before it was uh, initialized. Um, He is a nationally best-selling author and one of Canada's leading voices on innovation and economic disruption, which we've talked about on a number of our episodes recently. He is leading the RBC research and thought leadership on economic, technological, and social change. So you see him in the in the media quite a bit. You see him out there talking to groups like the one you saw him at, Scotty, trying to get us thinking about the world that's coming on us in a headlong rush. Now, previously, he was editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail and served as editor of Report on Business, the business arm of the Globe and Mail. He's a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute and at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. It sits on the boards of Queen's University, the Aga Khan Foundation of Canada, and the Literary Review of Canada, which is worth reading if you uh, if you can get your hands on it. Uh, in the United States, it's a really interesting journal. His latest book, Planet Canada. How Expats Are Shaping the Future, explores the untapped resource of the millions of Canadians who don't live in Canada, but exert their influence from afar, which we want to talk to you about, John. But welcome. Welcome to Canusa Street.
0: Thank you for having me on Canusa Street. It's great to be with you both.
1: We're so we're so happy to have you. And I was reading that you actually have a two-book deal with your publisher. Is Planet Canada the one about expats that we're going to talk about today? Is that the first of the two or the second
0: of the two? That was the second. Second, boy, you've done your research, Scotty. That's impressive. The first she was called mass disruption, and it was on how technology disrupted media. It was, I, I spent a number of decades, actually, I hate to date myself, in what's affectionately known as mainstream media, newspapers particularly, and I wanted to look at how technology disrupted the entire sector and what that might mean for other, other sectors.
1: Amazing. Well, we we would love your thoughts on all of the above. But why don't we start out with the with the latest book? Um, and I had the good fortune of hearing you talk about it a little bit in Edmonton. I have to say you're fearless because in Edmonton, Alberta, we were in a room of um, largely fossil energy execs, and you talked a lot about the energy transition in a way that I thought was direct and. You were well-received, but also there were a couple of guys that were looking at you a little sideways in that room. So so we'll talk about that, too, if if you don't mind. But let's start with your thesis on expats. Maybe, maybe what is the book Planet Canada about? What led you to write it? And we'll go from there.
0: Yeah, so Planet Canada is the story of what I call Canada's 11th province. Uh, we have 10 provinces in Canada, but we actually have an 11th. Uh, which is our diaspora or diaspora. There are three million Canadians roughly living, working or studying all over the world. And my argument, my thesis in the book is that this is Canada's secret power. Lots of countries, in fact, the vast majority of countries actively use their global populations in all sorts of ways, and maybe we can talk about how that's done. Canada does not, and I think that is a big strategic miss for us in this age of networks, of uh, digital and virtual connectivity, and I'm sure we'll get into soft power, which uh, your, your, your last podcast got into very smartly. There's a huge opportunity for for Canada by activating... This this network this province of three million people, a lot of whom are in the the United States, but you'll find them in every corner of corner of the world. I you asked how where, where the book came from. Yeah. Once upon a time, I was a foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail in New Delhi, India. I spent the most of the 1990s living in Delhi and reporting for the Globe from all over Asia and and Africa. And it, it always surprised me and intrigued me to run into Canadians in the most unlikely of places. It was always a Canadian. And they were always doing something, not always, but usually doing something really interesting and, and actually pretty useful for wherever they were. And we're not trying to do victory laps with it. We're not trying to like pin themselves with ribbons for it because that's not the Canadian way. And I tucked that away just thinking, I didn't really appreciate that about, about my country. And then move, move, moved home and post 9-11, there was a shift in sentiment across the, the world, but but in, in Canada particularly, towards global citizenship. And there was a tightening of rights and benefits of international citizens, the right to vote, various privileges that, that people might assume when they, when they leave their, their, their country. And I thought, okay, I get the security reasons for this, but we also may be undermining our international influence by by chiseling away at this connectivity or, or, or cutting the sinews between these people who tend to be really influential. They, they've tended to leave the country because they're not leaving the country because they're among the best in the world of what they do. And they wanted to go to wherever it is in the world that allows them to continue to do that. So we need those those people. And last point, the more I, 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 I talk to this network of Canadians, the more I was struck by how patriotic they are. We don't like that word patri- patriotic in Canada, by the way, uh, but yeah. th- there is a there is a Canadian patriotism, and it seems to grow significantly the farther you are away from from Canada. So again, a value, an asset for for Canada that we can take a lot greater advantage of.
1: I think it's interesting that you say that. we've The Canadian embassy in the United States for many years, actually after Governor Howard Dean's campaign for president, when he was the first major US presidential candidate to use the internet to organize, but people can remember way back then, the Canadian embassy then had a an effort that was called Connect to Canada, like Connect Number 2 Canada, And it started out as a great idea in the wake of Howard Dean's campaign, and it's kind of leveled off. And I don't, I don't think the diplomats here in the United States, the Canadian diplomats here in the United States, spend as much time thinking about Canadian expats as they do about, except maybe on Canada Day when they're invited to a party. But as they do thinking about how to cultivate Americans. So, is there is the diaspora especially large in the United States? I feel like I feel like it is. It certainly is in Hollywood, but is it? What does your research show, John, about Canadians living in the U.S.?
0: I, I I was able to do a really interesting research project through the Monk School at the University of Toronto, and we we gathered census data, and we were also able to map that on top of Facebook data for people who identified as as Canadian or had birthplace Canada in in, in their profiles, and kind of built a heat map of of. Canada's global population, maybe not surprising, New York and LA and London, England, or the London, Oxford, Cambridge triangle are are the biggest Hong, Hong Kong, very significant as well. But you find those red dots of Canadians. All over the, the 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 map, the United States, for obvious reasons, is is the place where you find the most Canadians living in hiding in plain sight, as as Canadians like to like to say. And it's an interesting challenge, Scotty, that you're touching on in terms of our diplomatic approach. And I've I've talked at length with a range of of, of diplomats in the Canadian service uh, about this. And there's a number of reasons that we haven't been able to seize on this opportunity. Um, in, In my mind, the biggest is that we are cursed by being a middle power. And we need to think of a lot more like a small power. When I studied how other countries go about activating or leveraging their global populations, it's the small powers and the big powers like India, but the small powers like Singapore and Taiwan and Israel, that are incredibly smart with it it's kind of the one one of the top jobs if you are posted for those uh, small nations wherever is build your network find out where <laughs> the people of your country are and put them to work and that is not job one Typically for Canadian diplomats going, going out into the world, so some small power thinking that we could benefit from, and then also maybe take some points from some of the the, the, the larger powers I mentioned India, which a country I know very well from living there for for close to eight years, but India has been a master at building up a global diaspora and then putting that to to work for for India's interests.
1: I want to challenge you for a second. I find this idea really interesting that Canada should. You know, you you argue this, I've seen you do it in person, you just also said it today, you know, act more like a small power. Like, Israel is fighting for its life every day, and so they're very focused. I want to know how you define what makes a powerful country. Because, again, when we were uh, together in Edmonton a couple of weeks ago, my new hypothesis, I don't even think I've tried this out on you, Chris Sands, but here's my new hypothesis. <laughs> Canadians and Americans, we tell ourselves a story about ourselves that is either not true or not necessarily true. And, and it's in the in the context of great power competition, particularly with countries like China. So the US, we tell ourselves we're a superpower and we will always be a superpower. I don't think that's necessarily true. Canada, I think, tells itself that it will never be a superpower. And I don't think that's necessarily true either because the way I think about power Resources, energy, food, so, you know, if you've got money, you've got resources, you've got energy, you've got food, you can get anything else you need, and in those areas, and there are others, innovation, whatever, Canada actually is among the best in the world, so, what, how do you think about a powerful country, or a big country, when you're thinking about how Canada thinks of itself, or should think of itself?
0: So there, there is a psychological curse to those resources because we have a natural wealth as well as a geographic advantage that is almost unparalleled in the world. And therefore, we can be comfortable as a middle power. We will always be in those conversations with the U.S. Uh, and others, the real powers. We don't, unfortunately, have the chutzpah that smaller countries have, the hustle to know that, you know what, there's a chance we won't be invited to the G20. Oh my God, what if we don't get invited? Like we gotta be there kicking the doors in. We just kind of assume, well, of course, we're gonna be part of that right. because we're little brother to the US and we've got all these natural natural advantages. So I'd like to see more hustle from, from the country and try to argue in the book that we actually do have significant people advantages, but we have to understand the power of small. We're 40 million people, maybe we get to 50, 60, whatever. But we're going to be half a percent of the world's population for the duration of this century. So as a half percent of the world's population, may, maybe we've got more share of the world's oil and gas or wheat or, or uh, GDP, uranium or, and, and GDP. But the, the GDP share is actually going to go down, continue to go down. And, and I, I mean, that is a good thing because it, the, the rest of the world's GDP is going to go up um, the rise of the rest. Uh, but we will have a significant share of those resources for uh, for for as long as probably the eye can see uh, through the through the century. But our real power is is those forty million people, even though it's just half a percent of the world's population. So how do we activate those forty million people? Well, we use network thinking. It's exponential thinking, and. I, I got onto this a lot more in Silicon Valley. Uh, there's an ma- amazing number of Canadians in Silicon Valley, uh, including a group called the C100, uh, right. C being for, for Canadians. So it's Canadians in the Valley. Depending on your measure, 250 000 to 350,000 in the Bay Area. You find them in every company at at, at at the highest levels. And the Canadians there helped me better understand exponential thinking and the the the, the power of networks. And as a country, we tend to still think, uh, and this is true for diplom- d- diplomats as well, in analog terms, it's one to one, instead of the power of one to 10. So everyone needs to think not like, who's the one person I'm going to deal with? It's who are the 10 that they're going to connect we- me with and the 10 that they connect me with, and then suddenly, that's that's the, uh, the, 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 the exponential power.
1: So interesting, and I I'm having so much fun that I almost forgot about my brilliant co-host. So we'll take a little bit a little bit of a break, and when we come back, I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself on mute because I know Chris Sands has some really cool, smart questions and interventions. So let's take a break, and we'll be right back.
0: What did Prime Minister William
1: Lyon Mackenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in DC focused on this vital relationship. So, in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands here with the great John Stackhouse, who I was just hogging the microphone because I'm so fascinated in his new book, "Planet Canada," which is about the potential power of Canadian expats. And with that, Chris, why don't I why don't I turn it over to you?
2: I happen to be such a fan that I was enjoying listening to you both as well. And and I, John, John, I don't know if if you'd agree with this, but when I read the book, I thought of it as in some ways. I kept mentally comparing it to Jeffrey Simpson's Star-Spangled Canadians, which I think was back in 2000, so kind of a 20-year gap between the books. But his view was a bit more negative, I think. I think he felt that there were a lot of Canadians who blended into U.S. society, had some still fondness for the country, but the reason, going back to the conversation before the break— The reason that diplomats and Canadian governments couldn't activate them in support of Canadian interests in Canada was that they had essentially sold out to the Americans. They were like too American now to really champion Canadian interests. I don't know if you'd agree if that book is an interesting parallel but when i read yours i saw i felt much more empowered and i i saw a way to get those people back what's your take on maybe the simpson thesis and what's changed in 20 years to make the optimism of your book possible well
0: yeah i i do have a more optimistic view so thanks for 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 seeing that chris and and just book is, is terrific, it's a must, must, must read. I think the world has changed and that leads partly to that, that rise of Canadian patriotism. 9-11 did, did change the world's psyche. And post 9-11, all that went with it, I think helped Canadians deepen their, their, their understanding and their appreciation of, of, of the country. But I think we also have fallen short in our, our ability to connect and, and leverage those Canadians. I was struck interviewing Canadians around the world. How many said, "You know, I am I, I am dying to help my country. I've I've been you know pleading, offering, and because I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing, probably you know among the top one percent in 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 the world. And yet we're not calling on them. I interviewed an extraordinary former executive from Google, one of you know top half dozen executives there during its uh, meteoric rise, who kind of kept reaching out to the Canadian government as, you know, as the world of networks, but literally of networks was changing saying, like, I can help here. <laughs> well, I'm over here willing to help. And like, no one called, no one called. And I sort of chalked that up to, okay, maybe that's one person's story or a bit of a, you know, something fell through the cracks. I heard it over and over and over again in Hong Kong, in the Middle East, in, in, in England, in continental Europe. Canadians say, I want to help. I've offered. And we need it. it, It's not just a matter of signing people up. You need to have something to sign them up for. So I offer some ideas in the book, both from uh, symbolism, you know, the French give out medals, for instance, because that's kind of what the French like to do to uh, to to their best expats. Well, not a bad idea. Maybe we should just Copy that. Maybe we do build a registry. I've heard from diplomats saying, "Well, you know, we're not really allowed to do that, or we don't do that for privacy reasons." I say, "Hmm, that's funny, because lots of other people are keeping registries. I have a database, uh, like everyone does. It's called a phone book." <laughs> um, so,
1: exactly. That yeah, that yeah, information would... is out there. That data exists. That people There's gladly put data. out. Yeah. They, data. Yeah yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. So so just you know, back to that hustle a bit. So let's let's get you know lean into this because it's such. A, a, a great logical opportunity, but there's also an enthusiasm that's infectious that you find from from this great range of Canadians in in in, in all sorts of places.
2: Well, I'm, if I can maybe build on that, so the the current government, the Trudeau government, has been, I think it's fair to say, much more networky and technology savvy, and using the prime minister's. I don't know what to call it his his charisma his his sort of celebrity aura because I've seen it and he's impressive when you meet him in person to kind of catalyze some of his projects abroad certainly when when we we're doing USMCA and in the early Obama administration or I guess the early Trudeau government but when the Obama administration was here there was a lot of that do you think that since your book has come out that that attitude or that problem of Canadians wanting to help and not being taken in, is it changing? Are diplomats changing? Is is, is the Canadian government's attitude towards their expats changing?
0: I, the, the attitude is definitely changing. There's been shifts, including on on, on, uh, on, on voting rights, which is important. Uh, and, and, and an important point that I stressed in the book is that Canada, through through immigration, is becoming the country that looks like the world. And even though we're 40 million people, there's no group of 40 million in the world that looks like the world the way we do. And also, through the power of immigration, the next generation, immigrants come to Canada, they tend to come as young adults, guess what, they have kids. So, and those kids tend to actually, unlike a generation ago, now want to go out in the world. And so now we have what I call the multicultural millennials, you know, kids, the hyphenated kids who you find all over the world now who are something hyphenated Canadian, born to immigrants. Maybe they were born abroad, but grew up and educated in Canada. But they now want to be citizens of the world as well as citizens of Canada. And that's in this very diver, diverted world I, I hope we can get deeper deeper into the challenges of and changes in the world and where canada can can also find an advantage they become the bridge builders in in all sorts of corners of of, of the world because growing up canadian and there is something to being canadian we are bridge builders that's kind of what we try what what, what we're good at and the world needs more bridges we need that we need it in our own country we got lots of work to do on on that but we we are able to bring that skill and that ambition to to other places but we can do it for the advantage of Canada this isn't just about going out to the the, the world as a you know a goodwill citizen we need to be putting this to strategic use for the country so a couple of examples chris you you cited the the the, the free free trade discussions when things were Really tense in 2017, 2018. There was an active effort by the Trudeau government, but but also among a lot of private sector actors to to activate groups across the U.S. to ensure that Canada's interests and the interests of NAFTA were preserved and maybe enhanced. And well, we called it the Maple, Maple
1: Charm Offensive.
0: The Maple Charm. <laughs> well, yeah. but but there was significant efforts and i think you're both part of different di- 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 different aspects of that to 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 surface these networks of canadians and it was very interesting to to see this mapped out that the governor of kansas as as an example would be surrounded by canadians well that's interesting how many canadians you know just happen to be you know, on, on the, on the, on the major donors list in, I'm making this stuff about Kansas, but, but, but there are other states that were in, 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 of, of this description or who had Canadians in their, in, in, in their orbit or in their office and those Canadians could be, could be activated and were, and that helped, you know, among uh, other things, it was not the solve on its own, but I think helped a lot of people, including in the administration realize, wow. There's a lot of Canadians here, and they're doing really good things. And they're actually very influential in our communities and our states. So we want to keep that going. How do we not undermine that? You, you can find that, I mean, that's the, the, maybe the most important example over the last handful of years, but you, you, you can find that in te- points of tension right around the world. And and how
2: important is it that it was? I mean, I remember that campaign because the USMCA was such a big issue. How important is it that it was not? It was all partisan, all provinces. That there was a sort of unity of message. Can you? Can this be sort of like I think about in India Narendra Modi, who is a partisan, and when he comes, there is some ambivalence because he's bringing one face of India, but people want to support India. Does. Canada to take advantage of its expat population have to keep it at a level of all partisan, one voice for Canada, or can it be partisanized?
0: No, 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 it's a really it's a critical point, Chris, and it has to be nonpartisan. I uh, suggest in the book that this be any effort to to take this on, be housed in, in Rideau Hall, where the, the governor general's office is and, and governors general over over the years. But David Johnson was probably the best at this. Have been very good at traveling the world, not just to to promote Canada, but to bring together Canadians, not just for you know nice uh, party or concert, but to to build that to build that network. And David Johnson would would, would respect that because of his his distinguished career in academia, so he understood go to any of the world's best universities. There's probably a number of Canadians on faculty. In fact, there's usually Canadians running them. At one point, I think it was five of the top universities or four of them in the U.S. were, were run by Canadians.
2: In- including mine, Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins has got a great Canadian president, so I know what you
0: mean. <laughs> there, there, there you go. I, I wish this was kind of a conspiracy, like we had plotted to take over Post-secondary schools or different programs around.
1: Well, and taking over the news. Remember Peter Jennings, a great Canadian news anchor, but Americans claim. Him. You know, the, I would go one thing further, and then we'll have to also talk about a few other ideas. All
0: right, flag, but, flag Samantha B. For you know your listeners. There, you, remember,
1: there um, you go, uh, Samantha uh, B.
0: We, we keep, we keep at it.
1: That's right. You know, it's not just expats though. This isn't in your book, but it just occurs to me as we're talking, John. It's also there are a lot of Americans. That have Canadian experiences that they treasure, whether it's summer camp, whether they went to school at Dow or McGill or U of T or you know Alberta, any, any you know, I I hate to start naming them off because I'm gonna I'm gonna miss a whole bunch of them, you know Kingston, Queens, all of it. But there are plenty of Americans that are also quite sympathetic to Canada and. If you could just surface the opportunities where Canadian expats and Americans who married a Canadian or went to summer camp or, or have some sort of a really positive experience, I, I, think, I think that is an untapped opportunity. I completely agree that, that, you know, when you're fighting big fights with like any big country, but especially the Americans, it's nice to have some, some secret weapons.
0: Well, the, the university alumni list is is one of those great secret weapons, and universities use it largely for fundraising purposes. Mm-hmm. Un- understood. but I, I I was intrigued in researching the book how American universities w- with their sort of international alumni don't think of it um, as fundraising; it's as network network building. So the Harvard Association in Beijing. It just wants to ensure that Harvard grads in China succeed. And then the, the money flows from, from, from there. Uh, but it's really about building up that network. So how do we put together that list of alumni from Canadian schools in a in India, for example? And you you know, we'd we have hundreds of thousands of, of, of Indians who have studied here and odds are they will rise over in the decades ahead to the upper echelons of, of corporate India as well as the Indian government how do we stay in touch with them so in the year 2045 or when, whenever there's an issue we've stayed in touch that relationship is strong and we can we can lean on them or activate them for for Canada's for Canada's interests.
1: Absolutely. So let me let me pivot for a second, because we since we have you, I want to take advantage of of the time. Besides the books that you've written, you're also known, at least within RBC, the bank as leading the RBC Climate Action Institute, I think. Why does a bank have a Climate Action Institute? What is it? And what do you do there?
0: so climate is one of the most critical issues of our time and it is it's critical to canada's prosperity for the decades ahead and canada's prosperity is going to um, greatly influence rbc's prosperity so we have a self-interest in ensuring canada gets gets this gets this right it's critical for the planet we think it's also a really important opportunity for the canadian economy that as we transition, as we, we talked about in Edmonton, Scotty, uh, to a full suite of energy sources for the world, this is going to help shape Canada's economy for decades to come in a very positive way. And we, 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 we certainly want to ensure that that continues in a positive direction. We also are increasingly accountable for the emissions of our clients. There's something known as financed emissions, where by most of the world's major banks, and certainly all the big ones in Canada and the US, have signed up to international approaches to measuring those financed emissions. And we have targets to reduce those those emissions, interim targets for 2030, and that's to ensure that we and our clients get to net zero by 2050. So that's uh, a rapidly evolving part of the business and an interesting part of the client conversation across a number of sectors. But we also felt it's important to inform as best as we can the Canadian conversation and global conversations, particularly as they affect Canada. So part of the group I get to lead here, the economics and uh, thought leadership team, includes this Climate Action Institute, which we've got five full-time researchers now, a couple of economists, a couple of public policy experts, and, a, and, a, and an engineer to help us with clean tech issues, research and publish all the insights we can on uh, on the climate transition. We try to take a, a, a pragmatic approach, as you might expect of a bank, and try to take a real economy-informed approach, studying, following our clients and groups of clients to take learnings from them and share those with with the general public but also with 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 other sectors and then the last part of the institute that's that's uh, i find very novel and exciting is is using it to form or join coalitions of the willing in different sectors on on decarbonization pathways so we've helped launch um, a net zero agri-food alliance which includes canada's biggest food companies uh, as well as a host of uh, really interesting farmers uh, from across the country who are working collectively on, uh, on, on net zero pathways we're doing the same in the building sector working with some of the country's biggest builders to, to then work with material suppliers on lower emissions concrete, for instance, or helping municipalities and other, other governments understand how zoning uh, approaches to zoning and coding are evolving and what they might do to, again, accelerate that, uh, that transition to a lower emissions economy.
2: Uh, John, one thing that that your group came out with recently that really struck me, maybe it goes back to that idea of of pulling people together, was a study where you put a number on how much more expensive a transition to net zero would be if we just froze and, and put out of business the fossil fuel folks in Alberta and elsewhere like cold. If we just said, okay, you no longer get to play in this field, you have to stop the difficulty of getting there and the additional cost Canada would have. And I think what was interesting is that many of the environmental groups have taken that, you know, you're with us or you're against us and we can't we can't even talk to you because you're part of the old fossil economy. Can you unpack that a little bit and talk about why you why you think this has to be an all in, everybody gets to play, everybody works together to get to net zero kind of future for Canada.
0: Well, to 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 borrow a line, this is a, you know the 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 point of a transition is it's a dial, not a switch, and we really have to be mindful of that because simply flicking a switch may be appealing to some people or to some ways of thinking, but it would be lights out, quite literally. For significant parts of of the economy and not just for the oil patch. We we rely heavily on on the export of oil and gas for our balance of payments. So think through what it would mean for the Canadian dollar and the the, the standard of living for all Canadians. Our ability to import things, if we're not exporting those things, suddenly falls into, into challenge. The reliance on all parts of the country. I was going to say large parts of the country. It's all parts of the country on fossil fuels is 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 really Im, Im, important. So we need to be mindful of the dial and constantly holding ourselves to account that the dial is moving. That it's not an excuse for for uh, to, for, for for inaction, but that it is going to take time and that uh, and, and that time is going to be years and depending on the parts of the the dial or the dials because it's probably multiple dials could take could take decades. We see this in the electricity sector. We're we're going to need at least twice as much electricity over the next 25 years as we have today. A lot of that's going to come from nuclear, especially here in Ontario, where where I am today. Yeah, and certainly listeners in the United States know the challenges of building nuclear, uh, the, the, the cost, the engineering, but also the NIMBYism, uh, serious issues around uh, waste management. All of it's manageable, but it's just going to take Probably more time and maybe more money than than people are estimating. So into that equation, how much natural gas are we going to need to help us with the transition? How do we abate that gas? That's often lost in this uh, conversation because the uh, the use of oil and gas from the product at the production and and combustion uh, ends of things uh, increasingly can be abated, not infinitely. But, but if, we, we, if we take a very strategic approach to it, we can continue to produce the full suite of resources that we have. We can extract the collective value uh, or a collective value from those and, and invest, uh, reinvest uh, much to that value into to evolving energy systems, more efficient energy systems, and ma- maintain that uh, macro benefit to the, uh, to the economy. And John,
2: uh, last time because now I'm dominating, and it, it'll be important for Scotty to get a word in edgewise here. But I, I wonder, you know, in the cabinet shuffle that we just saw at the federal level, the Minister of Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson, got in his title that he was going to be the Minister of Energy and Natural Resources. So you say, okay, it's a title change. Clearly, the stationary and business card lobby is the strongest one in Ottawa, since uh, everyone's going to need new cards. But it struck me that it also maybe speaks to something that's been a challenge in Canada energy is the responsibility of the provinces so how do you have a national energy policy when each of the provinces has a different energy mix and maybe different energy interests and in pulling in different directions your argument really speaks to what is good for the country and the trade offs and the fact that we we all need to get through this transition. Do you think that a Canadian energy strategy is, is not only possible, but even a precondition for getting to net zero by 2050 or whatever the year? It, it, it's a loaded
0: term, as you know, Chris. Uh, I know memories, I know. Of, memories of, 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 of the 1970s, but we need collective approaches to energy. And I think Minister Wilkinson would argue we we probably have to be more regional. It's not just about being national because energy sources are different and energy uses very different in different parts of, 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 of the country. So no one strategy for the whole country, but certainly uh, strategic options and uh, in, in, in in all regions for all forms of energy. I would add to that, though, Chris, that I think we need more of a North American energy Approach. I was going to say energy strategy. That may sound grandiose or even threatening to to some, but this is one of the key issues for the U.S. and Canadian governments to work on. And I think a, a, a file that the Canadian government can continue to 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 help the U.S. government with. How do we ensure that this continent, which is rich in all sources of en- energy, continues to to develop those resources in a climate-minded way does it for our strategic benefit, which now has a geopolitical overlay much greater than it uh, had even a few years ago, uh, but leads to a collective economic benefit certainly for for Canada and the U.S. We've actually had a fairly open energy market for for decades. In some ways, that's both impressive and 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 surprising because it could have gone the the other way, but. Canada needs to be mindful of, of, of the risks as well as the opportunities. On the risk side, we've seen this with various hydro challenges and trying to export hydro to the US. When you think about net zero North America in 2050, probably a lot more hydro is gonna go north-south than e- even it does today. So how do we work with the US at the subnational level as well as uh, national level to ensure that that happens as efficiently as, uh, mm-hmm. as as possible. How do we ensure that the flow of oil and gas continues uh, fairly? I was going to say unabated, but you you actually want it abated. So there's an interesting uh, double <laughs> right. entendre there. But yeah. uh, it, it, it doesn't get blocked at the border the way that we see it in terms of some pipe, pipeline development issues how do we ensure that technologies also flow freely? Carbon capture and storage is, is is a great one where we should be collectively the superpower of CCUS, and probably will be, but Canada and the US, and, and by we, I meant Canada and the US, we can learn a lot more from each other, we can share from each other, we can co-develop, co-innovate technologies, one might say the same of, of hydrogen and, 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 and so on. All this is even more important when one steps back and looks at the the big shifts in the geopolitical map of, of, of the world. China gets a lot of attention, as do, does Russia. I'm very mindful of the Middle East and how it is changing, rapidly growing, and will continue to for the next quarter century, both in population and GDP uh, numbers, and how strategic they are are, the Saudis, but also many of the Gulf states, how strategic they're being about reinvesting their oil and gas wealth in new forms of energy, as well as abatement technologies. That's good. But let's see that as a challenge as well, that if he wants to be the hydrogen power of the world, or the the Saudis want to be the solar power of the world, good on them, but game on. Let's make sure that we're, you know, we're developing technology as fast as they are and also exporting that to other other countries.
1: Yeah, well, John, you've perhaps unknowingly teed up a future episode of Canusa Street. We, I was just in Boise, Idaho at Penware, the Pacific Northwest Economic Region, and Penware does regionalization, cross-border regionalization better, I think, than than almost anybody. And I agree with you that if we think regionally, or at least think in terms of Canada and the United States, North, South, sometimes it's easier, actually, even than East, West, when when you think about it, because the regions have more in common with each other, Minnesota and Manitoba, Quebec, New York, Vermont. So, but anyway, we're going to air a future podcast coming right up on Canusa Street that has my panel where I talk to ambassadors about a regional approach to North American energy. So I'm glad you... I'm glad you did that. We're, we're coming to the end here. I have, a, I have kind of one last question for you that's a little bit different, but as, as I'm listening to you, I'm struck with your role as a thought leader yourself and as somebody who convenes important dialogues on these big issues. And I want to ask you, do you find that groups tend to talk to ourselves, like like-minded groups, We'll talk to ourselves, but we're not reaching out to others. So you you might have the business community, but it doesn't involve civil society. You might have NGOs, but they don't reach out to, you know, business and, you know, indigenous. Like, the, do you, are there enough cross-cutting, multi-sectoral, you know, multi-level dialogues? Or is that is that, I mean, because I sure don't see it. But if you do, if you figured it out at RBC, I'd love to know how you do it
0: no there, there there aren't and something we 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 should all be focusing more on it's, it's you know just a, a really frustrating irony or paradox even that we live in this age of abundance when it comes to information and access to different voices and yet yeah, limit ourselves i don't know if it's more than ever but uh, certainly much more than, than we should be limited be that as it, as as it may that's a great call to action and something we're trying to do with the RBC Climate Action Institute is, is to bring in other voices. We have a deliberate and I hope we'll be growing Indigenous component to uh, what we do, not for the sake of having Indigenous voices, but with a very Strong understanding that Canada will not get to net zero without uh, what we call reconciliation, uh, which includes greater Indigenous ownership of resources, and that that's going to become actually a very powerful asset for for Canada. But that's just one example. We need to 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 focus on opening the doors and windows to more voices, more experiences, and you know may, maybe I can draw. A draw a bit of, maybe I can draw a bit of inspiration from the book that you were kind enough to kick to kick off with the Planet Canada, Scotty. By the by, the way, I, I noticed in your last episode, you you mentioned the name of the book like 20, 20 times, and haven't heard. Oh,
1: that's anything. right, Planet Canada, Planet yeah, Canada, Canada, Planet Canada. Yes, Canada. yes. yes. I I yeah, forgot okay. that yeah, I'm supposed yeah, to do that. Yes, of course. <laughs> to
0: your, your your listeners with more, but uh, to pull your leg on that. So I'm, in Planet Canada, I explore this idea of, of bridge building, of being able to 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 engage with people of of different to engage with people of of different backgrounds. Diff, diff, different points of, of, of view. Um, in fact, one of the great global Canadians, Dominic Barton, says in the book that when he was running McKinsey, he always knew the Canadians in the room. He said there always would be a Canadian in the room where, wherever he was, and he could detect them because they were the, the, the people who asked questions and actually listened to the answer. And I thought that was a nice. Kind of reflection on on Canadians, where, where and
1: they apologized yeah, where, for interrupting yeah. to ask the question, perhaps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we but but we listen, which is something we need to do even more of. Uh, but something that the world uh, also needs to uh, needs to do uh, do more of. And maybe I can wrap up with because how how do we go through a whole episode without talking about Barbenheimer? Oh, that's right. Rele- rel the relevance of planet canada to to barbenheimer so i just saw the the
1: barbie movie last night actually
0: okay we'll get your 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 quick take on it but uh just before that a really interesting part of of oppenheimer is what you don't see and who you don't see in the movie which is all the canadians who were at los alamos and the canadians who are critical to the manhattan project and the development of really the 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 u.s nuclear program through the 40s 50s and and beyond and i got to interview just before he passed away an amazing mit physicist arthur kerman who was a montrealer went to mcgill and then went to a school he had never heard of which was mit and he became you know head of the 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 theoretical physics lab there studied at princeton as well and was close to Ed, ed edward teller the great h bomb scientist who's in the film but there were all, all sorts of canadians around around then as, as there is now but what was astonishing in 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 speaking with dr kerman was what he said which i quoted in the book that to 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 join the us nuclear program and he ended up advising president reagan he had to he he, he had to give up his canadian citizenship mm-hmm and he still had a copy of his letter and was almost tearful when he read it to me of having to write to his government to to renounce what he uh what was near and dear to his heart but core to his uh, to his identity and even to his dying days literally a few five, five or six years ago he saw himself as as canadian and he wanted it, it wasn't just a point of nostalgia he wanted to help canada and the us continue to maintain a dialogue over nuclear issues through the 70s, 80s and 90s and was not used to the extent that he could have been as one of the key advisors to to Reagan. So I I, I share that because think of all the Arthur Kermans there are across the US today, Canadians living in plain sight, running labs, running companies, Doing really interesting things. Who who want to help? Want to help with with that that great relationship, which, as every listener knows, is the world's you know sometimes challenged, but always the world's best 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 relationship between between countries. And then quickly to Barbie. Well, Ryan Gosling, you know, (laughs) say no more. Canadians everywhere, say no more.
1: Say no more. Listen, Scotty, what was your quick? I I thought it was interesting. I thought okay. I thought it was a good. I, I thought it was good. My son, who's eighteen, said it was really deep. So I wanted to I wanted to see what what he thinks is deep. But I, I thought it was good. I want to see Oppenheimer though. But to your point about Canadian expats, you know, Chris and I are both American and we're super fans. We both we do we both do Canada U.S. relations for a living, and it's really wonderful, at least from my perspective, to hear a Canadian talking about how great Canada is and 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 how sometimes you gotta you got to sing it from the mountaintop. So Planet Canada, Planet Canada, Planet Canada, Planet Canada. Get it on Amazon. Is it available on Amazon?
0: Everywhere Speak. you can get your books, yeah.
1: Anywhere you can get your books. And <laughs> and next time we talk to you, we want to hear about what books you're reading and what podcasts besides ours you listen to, but that'll be a future episode. And last word to you, Chris Sands.
2: Oh, I, I, you know, it's funny. I was going. I was sending a message to our producer, uh, the great Xavi Delgado, because we were talking earlier and he said not only Ryan Gosling, but Seamu Liu, who is also in the movie, is also Canadian, Asian-Canadian, and goes to that point you were making, John, about Canada looking more like the world. Yes, Ryan Gosling, very nice, good-looking guy, but here was this other fellow, one of the Kens, who uh, came out and was in the movie, too. So, uh, just reinforcing your point, and thanks to Zavi for having that very quickly for me as our producer. He's amazing.
1: Thank you to Zavi and happy birthday to Zavi. This is officially Zavi's birthday episode. And, and just to, cause since we're talking about Canadian actors um, and we're talking about Professor Chris Sands, I don't know if you guys have seen the show. I think it's on Netflix and I think it's called The Chair. And Sandra O oh is the chair of an English literature department at a school. And uh, she's obviously a Canadian expat who has uh, done pretty well for herself.
2: Wow. I am I'm impressed. Uh, I, you will always be the chair of Canusa Street in my in my book, uh, Scotty. So uh, I can't have any other competitors. But I am impressed that Canadians are taking a chair from taking a chair.
1: They're, they're everywhere. John Stackhouse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for this movie review opportunity and uh, for all of your all of your great thoughts. We're really delighted to have you. and We hope you'll come back.
0: Thank you both. I think it's been great.
1: Well, what more can i say chris i mean barbie oppenheimer planet canada terrific conversation with our friend john stackhouse
2: well absolutely and he epitomizes why Canusa street is such a place to be that there are so many canadians on this side of the street the american side and americans on the other side there's really something magical about that it makes the neighborhood very unique and while John's argument, Canadians need to take more advantage of it, is very important, I think it's also something Americans should take to heart as well. Uh, wherever we go, wherever, whatever the issue, we can count on Canadians with good ideas to be largely helping out.
1: Well, and likewise, it's mutual back and forth. Canadians can count on Americans, Americans can count on Canadians, and you know, Stackhouse talking about we all need a little more hustle is, is not a bad call out either. So anyway, let's hustle on down to Canusa Street, Chris. To our next episode.
2: It's always good to see you. It's always good to see you, Scotty.
0: Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.